Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Today's guest, Steve Ritter, is the founder and CEO of the Center for Team Excellence. He is on the faculty of the Center for Professional Excellence at Elmhurst College, where he earned the President's Award for Excellence in Teaching. He is the acclaimed author of the 2009 Amazon Top 50 Business Book, Team Clock, A Guide to Breakthrough Teams, and the 2019 release, The Four Stages of a Team, How Teams Thrive, and What to Do When They Don't. Team Clock methodology has been tested and proven to work in many settings. It is elegant in its simplicity to approaching complex human dynamics. In this episode, we answer what's a team and what makes a team healthy or sick and much more. So congratulations, I noticed your post this morning. Well, yeah, I know we uh, are so lucky to not only um, have we had a third grandchild, uh, welcome to the world, but um, both of our daughters live uh, within a mile of us. And so we get to see these little guys all the time. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. I will say that um, my daughters are 21 and almost 19. And one of the things that my eldest daughter was the first grandchild. And one of the things that my parents told me after her arrival, and they waited a little bit (laughs) before they told me this, but they said that there's absolutely nothing like being a grandparent. Nothing. You know, there there are, there, it is true. And it's way better than you think it's going to be. And Mm -hmm. um, for, for a couple of reasons, one is that the relationship you end up having with your grandkids is so much different than the relationship you have with your children. Um, Because you see generations of people kind of, um, kind of cascading down into them. Mm-hmm. And then you and then you get to see your children become parents. Um, but the thing that I think I like most is that when you're with them, everything else in the universe melts away. That's what I hear. I don't think that people think of being healthy and being well outside of themselves as an individual, and more specifically, only thinking about things like, do I eat the correct things, or do I get enough sleep, or do I exercise enough? You're not just an isolated individual. So what I've been wanting to do with this podcast is expand the idea of health and wellness to include your social sphere, the people with whom you surround yourself, very important. So we choose sometimes to spend time with people, but then there are other times where you don't have a choice say, in a, in a marriage with your in-laws or in the workplace. Exactly. And so, well, we've been acquainted for years now through my husband, Kevin, but after following you for a while and reading your books, it was just very clear to me that we need to extend the idea of health into teams, mm-hmm. our teams, but even more so to recognize that we are part of a team I don't think people necessarily think about structuring their lives and their thoughts that way. And I think if you do that, then you're in a better position to enhance those relationships. So those are kind of the big reasons why I was so excited to talk to you today. Yeah, that makes sense. And I I don't know that either you or I know anyone who's actually a hermit. Um, but but mo- most of us, I mean, I, I've always looked at health and wellness through the lens of relationships. I don't know anyone who can't define four or five. Uh, I, I think I use the, t- the word team and the word relationship uh, interchangeably most mm-hmm. of the time. I don't know any of us who aren't uh, in four or five or six significant uh, groups of people, whether that's a, a dyad or a triangle of people or a foursome or a small group or a large group or a faith community or the recreational softball team you're playing on the weekends or the book club or your neighborhood, uh, each one of those. I and mean, if you get to uh, you know, what actually defines a team, if the, you know, the simplest, broadest way of thinking about that is 
two or more people who collaborate on a common goal, well, that embraces a lot of things, you know, mm -hmm. whether that's you and Kevin or Nancy and I and how we raise our children or our grandchildren, or whether that's your workplace, um, or whether that's your neighborhood. Uh, it, uh, and, and as you say, not everyone that you're interacting with um, is easy to be with or to talk to. Some people fuel you and some people drain you and some people mm -hmm. are emotionally healthier and some people are emotionally not as healthy. And that's kind of been the, you know, the fuel for this, for my career is, is I've always been fascinated by the odd chemistry of relationships. And, you know, what is the role of joy and what is the role of struggle and how is it that people navigate through things? It just has a fascination for me, which led a long time ago to trying to have a model that made sense to understand the complexity of relationships and teams in as simple of a way as was possible to understand. So this is what led you to identify a problem that you wanted to solve when you thought about innovating team, the team clock methodology? Well, when you think about innovation, it is it is a, a, an unsolved problem, and I certainly would not uh, be as grandiose to suggest that I know how to solve relationship problems or team problems across the board. But I remember when I was in graduate school realizing that um, teams went through cycles and that um, and that everyone struggles, that relationships and teams are complicated and conflict can be messy. And I wanted to create a model that would accommodate all the challenges and stuck points that teams experience and that relationships experience. And I wanted it to be simple to understand and mm -hmm. um, simple to apply. And at the time, uh, you know, a buddy of mine who's a professional musician uh, had moved from kind of rock to classical to jazz because he, he wanted to have a lifetime worth of things to work on. And he felt like he was kind of maxing out in the rock world. And he said to me that a lot in jazz hasn't advanced since Miles Davis in the mid sixties. And I thought about that when it came to teams and a lot in the way that we thought about teams hadn't advanced since uh, Bruce Tuckman's uh, forming, storming, norming, performing theory that came out of the mid-60s. So here, you know, it was the late 70s, early 80s in my early career, and I felt like 15 years had passed and no one was kind of going to the next level of thinking about relationship theory and thinking about team theory. And teams coming together and forming, then having some conflict and storming, and then setting some ground rules and norming, um, and then performing made sense only in a vacuum that it was mm -hmm. linear and that so if you go from step a to b to c to d and then you have a team congratulations worked good on paper but not in actuality when i thought about the teams i was on and the the relationships i was in i couldn't think of one that followed that model cleanly some people skipped steps when it was time to find to form ground rules and set norms people would bake in unhealthy norms people didn't like conflict so they would avoid it so problems would get more deeply rooted than they needed mm -hmm. to be and mm -hmm. so i was so i was looking for a model that would explain that a one where you could move backwards or forwards you could progress or you could regress um, you could get stuck you could choose to do something over again you could skip a stage and it would be able to reflect the the way that um, relationships actually worked and so what you know what came into my head when I was 30 years old was a, was a clock because it's always cycling it's perpetual mm -hmm. it's eternal and each number on the clock would represent a stage of the team's development and so I brought it to uh, the head of the doctoral program uh, at Loyola University, a guy named Randy Lucente, uh, who was my favorite professor at the time. And um, I said, you know, what do you think of this? And he looked at it and he said, you know, it's got some overlap with uh, standard relationship theory, but I don't know anyone who's 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 drawn a model in a cycle like this. Mm -hmm. He said, he said, so it makes sense and keep working on it. And so I kept chipping away at it. Um, and then, you know, what happens when you have a model in your head is you start seeing the world through that lens and getting either validation or challenge to the way you're thinking of, about your model. And I kept getting validating experiences. Everything I saw, every time people struggled, every time people problem solved a struggle and, and had some kind of growth, it, it made sense in the context of the model. And so then, you know, years passed and, um, 
after a fair amount of uh, testing and experimentation with it, I finally got persuaded to uh, write it and publish it and uh, apply to the patent office for a trademark. And the first book came out uh, to 10 years ago now. It was a simple way to understand something that's extremely complex, that the chemistry of relationships and the chemistry of teams can be so complex and messy. And the model gave people a very, very simple way to understand, oh, okay, we're in this stage now, so we're supposed to be frustrated, or, or we're in this stage now, so we're supposed to be excited, or it's supposed to be scary when you're taking a risk and trying something new, or I'm supposed to be emotionally depleted when a change has happened. Okay, this is normal. I understand. So I go from here to somewhere next. And so I started seeing people adopt the model and apply it to their situations. And um, the rest is history. What I really like about the team clock methodology is, as you've said so eloquently, that change is cyclical. It allows us to be able to accept failures and or successes or challenges and try again and to be able to have something objective to look at um, so that you can make progress. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, a lot of people use the term renewal um, mm. that, that um, I always kind of think of it like you always get another chance at something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you read the first book, Team Clock. There was a page or two in there where I talked about a relationship with my son where he had become a teenager and now the car rides to and from his piano lesson were no longer conversations. He had earbuds in and I had something on the radio and we would drive for 20 minutes to his piano lessons and not be in communication. And I thought this... This isn't the kind of relationship I wanted to have with anyone, you know, and so I asked him to take out his earphones and I turned off my radio and I said, you know, I know you're 17 now and that hanging out with your dad is not the most fun thing to do, but you know, what, what does it look like now, you know, and what's going to look like five years from now and 10 years from now? And can we keep redefining what attachment looks like and what collaboration looks like and what trust looks like as time goes on? And before we knew it, you know, we had a different kind of um, cadence going in the car to and from the piano lessons that was much more reflective of a 17-year-old son of a 50-year-old father than it was a 30-year-old father with a 10-year-old son. Mm -hmm, and, and, mm -hmm. and, and then, so what it occurred to me is that, you know, so he's going to grow up and go on to college and move away and I'm going to lose him, but I'm actually not losing him. I'm also gaining an adult version of him and I get to have a different kind, I get a different kind of relationship with him that replaces the one that I'm losing. So the same thing would apply that if you, if you screw something up or if you make a mistake or if you inadvertently make a decision that hurts somebody, you can repair things that are broken. You can learn from your mistake and you can come around the next opportunity you have and improve on that theme. So the, so the model, the visual model of it has uh, increasingly large dots moving from the center and it kind of concentric circles out. And the idea is that every time you go around the cycle, you can deepen the amount of investment that you have and you can strengthen the amount of trust that you have and you can get a little more daring in your innovation and you can become more effective in the way that you manage, manage change. And that the next time around the cycle, you're going to get a chance to deepen that even further than you did before. And so uh, I had a question once during a presentation, someone raised their hand and said, is it infinite? Is the, mo is the visual model of the team clock infinite? That, that there's no uh, end to your ability to invest more deeply in someone or uh -huh. trust can grow uh, eternally with someone or there's not uh, you know an exploration or a discovery that is too complicated to continue to be innovative even though you've already figured something out or can you get more resilient over time when you face adversity and my answer was yes it's infinite you can always take it to a new level, whatever that happens to be. So interestingly, uh, while most of the time when the phone rings in my office, it's for a team that is struggling in some way that's looking to find the path to get well, mm -hmm. uh, um, sometimes the phone rings because somebody has done a good to great and they want to go great to greater. Or they're saying, you know, what's the relative weakness amongst all these strengths that would allow us to take this to the next level? And, and that's a much different kind of work. And, and 
you know, a, a good marriage does the same thing, right? A mm-hmm. good marriage doesn't just rest on the laurels of the fact that it's a strong relationship. It's constantly saying, how are we doing? Why do you ask? Because oh, I, I want to make sure nothing takes root if we haven't talked about something. And, oh, we're fine. All right. So how are we doing? I said we were fine. Well, how are we doing? Uh, well, 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 since you asked, there's this. Oh, good. Oh, that again? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. so you, you, there's always a chance to keep things moving stronger and stronger moving forward. And, and so that, you know, that that's what the clock does. It's always midnight again, or it's always noon again, or it's always three in the afternoon again. It comes around and around and around and shame on us. If it's the same, every time it comes around, you know, the intention is to keep it growing and keep it moving and keep it evolving. Can you please briefly describe what the numbers represent on the clock face? I can. So, you know, the, the, there's an easy way to look at it and there's a complicated way to look at it. And so if you, if you move around from uh, 12 o'clock back to 12 o'clock again, so from the top of the clock, the one o'clock phase is what we call investment, which is, you know, who, who is my team? Who are my leaders? You know, what is the mission of this organization? What are the values of the organization? What is the vision? What are the goals? Are we all moving in the same direction? And to what degree am I bought into that? Mm-hmm. Uh, two o'clock, before you actually buy in, is usually some testing of that. So imagine that you're maybe in a new workplace or with a new team. Have you been oversold in some way? Is the leader really as, you know, what he or she purported themselves to be? And so before people kind of buy in uh, at three o'clock, they test a little bit. So two o'clock is testing. Three o'clock is is, is uh, dependence uh, or interdependence. And what that means is that we all in this relationship or in this group or in this team or in this organization are bought into the same things. Mm-hmm. And then these are our values and these are our goals and we're going to move with this together. We may have difference of opinion in the way that we achieve those goals. And we want that diversity of opinion because it's going to be fuel for innovation later. But the direction that we're heading and the way that we head there um, uh, uh, we all agree on. And so that's what three o'clock is. And that includes the ability to navigate some differences and some conflict uh, in the interest of embracing diversity as a strength of the team. So from there goes to four o'clock. Four o'clock is a trust stage and trust is made or broken by accountability. So you think about, you know, in a typical day, we may have a dozen different small or large accountability trusts. So for instance, we agreed to begin this call at 11 o'clock in the morning and mm-hmm. I was on and you were on. And so we both strengthen trust in a small way at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you can imagine, there are big ways of blowing trust or strengthening trust as well, but it usually is accountability to the values and the mission and the direction of the team. And it's accountability to the norms of the way we treat each other, whether that's respect or whether that's professionalism, whatever it happens to be. Five o'clock is cohesion. Cohesion is the bringing together of people who have built trust and who are moving toward the same goal. And this is the, the, the moment when every workplace ought to send out an employee satisfaction survey because at five o'clock, everyone loves each other. Everyone feels t- <laughs> tight. And it's a really good time to say, yeah, thumbs up, you know, things are working well. Mm-hmm. Um, six o'clock is that, you know, we call it attachment, but it's some form of connectedness, some form of love. It's kind of the extreme version that we are one. Um, and, and the interesting thing about that is a lot of teams think now, you know, that's the, that's the forming, storming, norming, performing is six o'clock is, mm-hmm. is starting to perform. But what has happened there is we brought ourselves together and created the foundation needed to really create growth and change because a good healthy team doesn't just achieve togetherness. It creates a foundation for growth and change. And so mm-hmm. se- seven o'clock is innovation. So what are we going to do with this? Whether it's the marriage and how it evolves or whether it's the team or the organization and how it grows and evolves. And that usually means taking some level of risks. So eight o'clock is risk and nine o'clock is independence. So independence uh, is an interchangeable word for change. We've taken the foundation of what we all agreed on. We've surrounded it with trust and psychological safety and respect and cohesion. We've used that platform to innovate and take risks. And now we've created something new. And maybe that launches someone who was a leader in the organization to a new job, or maybe that creates a product that no one's ever used before, uh, or maybe that is a breakthrough in medicine. 
uh, independence is usually is some problem solved through innovation, and then that requires responding to the change. So 10 o'clock we call distancing, and that's when you move away from the way it used to be, mm-hmm. you get a little perspective on it, and, and brace yourself for the fact that you're going to go through what at 11 o'clock is a separation from people, from processes, from teams, whatever the change has brought, mm-hmm. positive or negative, and then back to 12 o'clock, which is the loss phase. Um, and then, um, as, as depleting as loss can be, it leads to a new in, uh, investment phase at one o'clock all over again to whatever your new circumstances are going to be. And so each of these numbers around the clock lives in a stage. And so the you know one o'clock, two o'clock, and three o'clock are in our investment stage generally. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. four, five, and six are in our trust stage. And uh, seven, eight, and nine are in our innovation stage and then 10 11 and 12 o'clock are in our distance stage and so that's a much simpler way to look at the clock rather than to see it in 12 points that you have to keep moving through I see. Uh, like to look at it in these quadrants of um, stages just in general what are the characteristics of a healthy team versus that of an unhealthy one I love this question because everyone can relate this to the teams that they're on very quickly, right? And so if you, and many of these are common sense, right? So, so let's kind of walk through them. So a healthy team has norms that support health, which is as simple as the way we treat each other, what it's like to be in this workplace, and kind of the kind of the way that this workplace does it. And so, like for instance, I've I, I have a lot of experience with some of the medical centers across the city. So the way Rush does things is different than the way UIC does things. It's different than the way University of Chicago does things. Mm-hmm. It's different than the way Loyola does things, or that Advocate Healthcare does things. These are all wonderful, amazing, world-renowned health centers, but the culture of these are all very, very different. Vastly different. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with the norms that, you know, what it's like to work there. So, for instance, uh, I spent 12 years of my career at Advocate Healthcare, um, and that was a faith-based healthcare system. So, what does it mean to work in a faith-based system affects every employee in that system. Um, I've had clients in the UIC health uh, system for about a decade. Well, UIC prides itself in serving the underserved populations of the city. So that makes a very different culture for working there as well. So norms would be one of the things that I would I would list. And I would uh, then tie that to values that, that, um, mm. that people need to feel aligned with the values. Mm-hmm. So, so that mm-hmm. could that could be appreciation of diversity as a strength, or that could be the understanding that conflict is fuel for innovation later, and if it's done respectfully and professionally, it helps the team, it doesn't hurt the team. Those kinds of things, not just the values and vision around we seek to accomplish X with this team, but more about the things that we believe that we hold common with each other and moving forward, and are we all aligned with that? Mm -hmm. So obviously an unhealthy team bakes in unhealthy norms where diversity isn't seen as a strength and change is considered a bad thing and um, you know conflict is considered harmful to the team, not helpful to the team, or we aren't aligned with our visions or our values. Those are That's kind of the unhealthy side of the ledger there. Um, I probably would list um, productive management of conflict. You know, the healthy teams tend to invite conflict and address it and realize that it's healthy. Uh, it's a healthy part of struggle that helps people grow. I probably would list um, respect and trust as uh, and accountability and psychological safety as non-negotiable ingredients of a healthy team. Uh, when people talk about being on unhealthy teams, those are often the first things they mention is I don't feel respect, respected or I don't feel trust or there's not psychological safety in the workplace or people aren't held accountable. And so that's the unhealthy side of the ledger is when those things are absent. Um, connection. Uh, a lot of teams boast having a family-like culture. Uh, that's usually the presence or absence of connection in the workplace. The unhealthy side of that is it's really easy to fall into some version of an us and a them. And so, yes. so mm-hmm. for instance, it could be veteran employees versus newer employees mm-hmm. or 
or if there's been a merger or acquisition, it can be kind of the uh, legacy people versus the the acquired people coming in. That that falling into some version of an us and them is really easy for teams to do. But feeling a part of something bigger than you that every everybody's a part of, regardless of their role, um, is a sign of a healthy team. Uh, I would also list uh, the willingness to explore and discover um, and be uncomfortable um, so uh, and fail uh, as a way of supporting innovation as a healthy uh, uh, symptom of a team. And, and perhaps the other side of the ledger for an unhealthy team is kind of being cautious and, and being loyal to the status quo and resisting change in some way. And then on the note of change, uh, healthy teams are resilient, and not just during uh, normal circumstances, but especially during stressful circumstances. And so being resilient during periods of adversity is a real symptom of a healthy team. And, and that relies upon having built a really solid foundation of trust. Exactly, exactly. So there's your ledger, you know, clear norms, uh, professional management of conflict, mutual trust, a sense of being a part of the, something bigger than you, willingness to take some risks and try new things, being resilient during adversity. Um, uh, that's kind of the recipe. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Team Clock was your first book, as you mentioned, about 10 years ago, and that's very concisely written, outlining the why of a team. And then the four stages of team, which is your recent publication came out this year, discusses the how, and you really dive into case studies and specific examples of uh, the four stages, as you mentioned before, investing, trusting, innovating, and distancing. In your experience, which stages do you find teams typically get stuck? All of them, but for hmm. different for different reasons. So if you if you think about um, so the first stage is investment, and that's that one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock place on the on the clock, where people are getting aligned with uh, of you know values and vision, and they are setting their norms and they're learning how to have conflict in a professional way. That's an easy place to get stuck for two reasons. One, usually that phase follows a distancing stage where people are depleted from managing change. So the energy is low coming in. Mm -hmm. And and secondly, um, learning how to manage conflict is a part of that stage. And usually that's frustrating for people. Um, I, I kind of uh, think about like when you're like if you go horseback riding and, and the horse wants to run, but you have to saddle it up and you know, get it ready to go and it wants to leave. It's kind of like, well, before we can go build trust and be innovative and do all the things teams want to do, we have to build our infrastructure. Mm. What are our norms? What are our goals? What are our values? How are we going to manage our differences? And so you've got this these really kind of interesting forces coming together that are both a coming together of things and conflict in between them and hard work at a time when we're kind of depleted emotionally from whatever change we've been through. So okay. that's, a, that's a reason to get stuck there. And that can be as simple as disagreement on direction or disagreement on norms or um, uh, unprofessional way of managing conflict. That can make it hard for people to move on to the trust stage. Mm -hmm. The reason that people get stuck in the trust stage is because it's so, well, it's one of two reasons. Either it's so comfortable and it, it feels is. so good. It why, does. <laughs> why, would you, why would you leave? Why would yeah. you sacrifice that mm -hmm. to take a risk and go out on a limb and, and innovate when that's going to feel scary? The, the feelings that come from being in a respectful, safe, accountable environment when people feel connected and the goal is moving forward that everyone agreed on, it's really hard to imagine that sacrificing that for something scary is a smart thing to do, but it's exactly what to do. It's exactly mm. what allows people to grow. So people get stuck because they don't want to give that up. They don't want to sacrifice it. But the other reason that people get stuck is because um, in its absence, feeling disrespected, feeling unsafe makes it really difficult to move forward. So imagine, you know, you've got a, a brilliant idea about how something maybe could be managed differently than it's being managed. But the last time you shared a brilliant idea, you were publicly, publicly humiliated by your boss or you got mm -hmm. a slap on the wrist. I had someone say to a colleague in a school one time, you've not been here long enough to have an idea. Oh, I'm not and, surprised. And, and it shut her down immediately. Mm -hmm. She had 
she had brilliant ideas. The same thing happens to introverted people. The people who aren't the first to raise mm-hmm. their hand because they mm-hmm. want to think a little bit before mm-hmm. they, they speak. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. in any given workplace, if you have a table with uh, eight people sitting around it, three or four of those people are introverts. Mm-hmm. And and they're, they they may have the best ideas, but they may be the, the last to speak up, particularly if the environment doesn't um, allow for the safety uh, for them to have a different idea or for them to speak up, or if they don't feel like, um, you know, they're a part of the group in the same way because they're more quiet than somebody else. And so people get stuck in this trust stage for both reasons. A, it's comfortable, or B, it's unsafe to move forward for some reason. And the moving forward is taking that platform of investment and trust and doing something a little daring, leveraging differences, taking smart risks, and being innovative. And that, by its nature, is scary. It's apprehensive. You're out on a limb. You're trying something that hasn't been tried before. You're solving a problem. And the reason people get stuck there is one of two things. They're either afraid, they're responding Mm -hmm. to fear, and Mm -hmm. maybe the the amygdala of their brain is shouting out messages that that something awful is going to happen if you move forward. Sure. or there's insufficient trust to support leveraging differences, or maybe they built in unhealthy norms at the beginning that said having different opinions isn't something we do here, and so they keep things to themselves. And so, but generally, the reason people get stuck in innovation is because they're afraid of what would happen if they make change. And then, and then the distancing phase is you've made change, but the differences that come from that are depleting to our energy. And so people get stuck there for a couple reasons. One, they're either emotionally and physically depleted from managing change, or they may not agree with the consequences of the change. If that means that the leader that they've always trusted is moving on to bigger and better things, and there's going to be a new leader coming in, they might not like that change. Or maybe Mm -hmm. it was their best friend or office mate that is leaving to take another opportunity that resulted from what they innovated. And so people... You see people at their best and worst during periods of change. And so the reason we use the term distancing is because sometimes it helps to step back a little bit and get a little bit of perspective on what's actually happening here and what our new circumstances are going to look like. And then you can kind of refuel and refocus and step back in and decide how you're going to be a part of whatever's next as you get around to the next investment phase. And most of us can do that stepping back and getting perspective when we're calm or when we're, you know, feeling okay. But when we're totally stressed or totally depleted, sometimes it's hard to get that perspective. So that's why we call that phase distancing rather than change or change management Mm -hmm. because it's, it's the stepping back and getting refueled and getting perspective that allows you to move forward. I'd like to focus a little bit more on conflict resolution because I feel like that is a very loaded area for a lot of potential to get stuck, whether conflict is invited or conflict is repressed. People typically respond to having a difficult boss by saying things like, well, I have to tolerate it because I need the money, so I just have a bad boss, and doesn't everyone have a bad boss? Um, Or I'll just survive here in this workplace, and so I'm just going to do the minimum required to get through my eight hours, and then I can come home after that and forget about it. Or it's intolerable and quit. So I know you've had plenty of experience with navigating broken team dynamics. So how, what would you say to that very typical scenario of a difficult boss situation? Well, the, you know, the, the uh, easy out on this one is saying it depends, but here's what it depends on. Mm-hmm. It depends on, you know, where you are in your career. Are you, you know, fresh out of school and this is your first job? Are you mid-career? Are you late career? Um, do is your financial situation require you to do something? And there's lots of variables in the equation that change from person to person. But you know, if you think um, in the world, in the perfect world, in the world of ideals, I would say no one should ever tolerate uh, actively disengaged, toxic, broken people, whether they're a boss or a coworker. That people should people should only be in workplaces where they feel respected. That's just not reality. And, mm-hmm. and, and so, um, so I think 
like one of the adages that that um, they say in kind of career development is that when you're early in your career, you take the least sucky job, but get the best supervision and training and mentorship you possibly can. And you kind of get hone your craft and try to build a network of really supportive people. And so for somebody who's maybe earlier in their career and they don't have the freedom to move, but they've got a bad situation, you, you kind of find the mentor or find the, you know, the subgroup of people where there's kind of an insulation away from some of the other things and you get what you can out of the situation until you have an opportunity, either through your own skill development or through your networking or whatever it happens to be to better your situation. Situation. There's mm-hmm. always something to be gained from uh, a, a, a situation, whether it's a positive or a negative situation. And a lot of teams will insulate themselves. I, I worked on a team once that was amazing, um, but the leadership above us wasn't. And so um, many of us on the team didn't have the freedom to make an immediate move. So we protected, we made the we made the small group culture into a good culture, even though the things that were happening above us were intolerable until we had a situation uh, later on that we could, that we could do something about it. Um, so, you know, there, I think there are maneuvers that people make to learn to get the best out of a bad culture mm-hmm. when they're in the place that they can't. Um, I also remember a situation when I was a little later in my career where I said, this isn't okay. And this means a job hunt for me because I'm not going to ever be in a situation again where somebody who is toxic or dysfunctional has the ability to make me miserable. And there's no amount of money or salary or benefits that I'm going to exchange for being miserable. And so, um, and sometimes in that situation, the freedom to go equals the freedom to stay. Once you've, once you've realized that this isn't what you're going to tolerate any longer uh, and that you have to make some kind of maneuver, whether that takes a week or a month or a year after that, you've given yourself the freedom to make some kind of a shift in your life. And it doesn't matter how immediate that is. In some ways, at that point, your employer is funding your job hunt because, you know, you're doing enough to come in and do your job and get your get paid every two weeks, but you may not be bought into the culture of the place if it's become dysfunctional or if it's hurting other people or if it isn't aligned with your values, then it's a matter of time before you find something that is. And oftentimes people who have that experience, it's a one-time experience. They say, I'm never going to be in a situation again Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. where I allow someone to take advantage of me or I'm not trusted or it doesn't feel safe or I've got that sinking feeling on Sunday night that I have to go to work the next day. <sighs> yes. Um, you know, that's something that um, I guess you can tolerate a little of that early in your career, but the, the further you get into your career, the more everyone ought to demand a culture of accountability. You know, if you, uh, this is why companies like Glassdoor exist. You know, every business, you know, across the country gets a, gets a culture rating by Glassdoor. Um, uh, one of my kids worked for a company that had great culture ratings uh, nationally, but happened to report to a manager who was awful. And so the internal, you know, the six or seven of them that worked in this part of the building was miserable, even though nationwide it was considered the greatest company to work for in the history of business. Um, and so that required her to have to make a move at some point, even though the company culture was good. The company somehow didn't hold that manager accountable to being a good manager. Maybe that manager needed to develop his or her skills in some way. So I guess what I'm saying is eventually you get to the point where um, you have to decide whether you want to normalize dysfunction and have uh, that pain become part of your day-to-day work because mm-hmm. what, we, what we tolerate, we sanction. Mm -hmm, Um, or, or whether you're in a position to say, you know what, I'm either going to try and make some change internally here with whatever my platform is, depending on what my role is in the organization, or, um, especially in this day and age where unemployment is so low and people are hungry to find talented people, maybe it's time to go shopping for a different situation. In your opinion, are there bad leaders? There are bad leaders. Sometimes not, not intentionally, right? Sometimes leaders haven't developed their leadership skills yet. What about a manager who has a a dictatorial style? Well, most of us uh, wouldn't want to be in a 
a social relationship like that. Most of us wouldn't want to be in a marriage like that. Most of us wouldn't want to have the captain of your soccer team act like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of us wouldn't want to be treated in a domineering, controlling way in a workplace Mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I don't mean to be judgmental about people's mental health. There are some people who seek that out. They seek relationships with people who are controlling. I don't think that's healthy. And so that's really uh, interesting. Why people end up in the relationships they end up with it goes back to that kind of fascination of the odd chemistry that happens in relationships and teams. People don't always seek wellness. I remember one of the ethical conversations we had in social work graduate school was this notion of secondary gain where they would pose the question, is it better to be healthy or sick? And everyone would raise their hand and say, it's better to be healthy. And then the professor would say, well, actually, it's better to be sick because there's way more secondary gain. You know, people come and take care of you and they're worried about you and you get all sorts of attention that you wouldn't have otherwise gotten. And it made us all think about the reasons that people choose unhealthy situations. Mm. And in some ways, toxic people seek toxic situations. And so if, if we come in and assist a team in getting to a better place, and there's been a subset of that team that have been dysfunctional and toxic to the workplace, and the culture has tolerated that and sanctioned that and allow that, but through intervention with our model has decided to have a culture with a stronger culture and more accountability, there's a problem for the folks who have been toxic and dysfunctional because they're no longer, they no longer have the air that they breathe. They never, they no longer have the currency that they function by. If their wellness as humans is predicated on making other people feel weak and the culture no longer allows for that, then they either have to find a different way to get their needs met or they have to go to a workplace that allows them to hurt other people. Right. So, you know, we, we assume that everyone wants to be healthy and we assume that everyone wants a culture of workplaces, but there are, you know, the Gallup organization has been measuring this for decades. 20% of most workplaces is what they call actively disengaged. These are people who are using their energy to hurt their coworkers and the hurt, hurt the workplace. And that you know, who, yeah, you know, boggling. Uh, it is, but you know who these people are. You've been in these workplaces as well, right? Um, yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you, you come from the medical field. I've spent a good share of, of my career in healthcare in the medical field as well. And so you think about, you know, someone like you who maybe got in, got a good MCAT score and got a good medical school um, and got the best uh, residency and the best fellowship. Some people do that by climbing over the backs of their peers, not by being collaborative. And, oh, lo- and, and, and I'm oh, so happy. I'm so happy. Yeah. And I don't mean to cut you off, but this is a, that's a great segue. The culture has been that of a, at least when I was training, I don't know if things have changed. When I was going through, it was definitely, well, as you know, my husband was in the military. And when we were both in school and then going through our transitions, he in law school and I in medical school and residency and fellowship, there were so many parallels. I didn't grow up encouraged to think team. I grew up encouraged to think interacting with other people, it was competition because there were only so many slots. And so you had to be the best at and you had to get the best grades at. Now, I wasn't one of those people who was actively um, engaged in harming others, hiding books and things. But you knew how to win. You knew how to win. You knew how to get the best residency. You had to. You knew how to get the best fellowship. You know how to get into the best med school, right? And and then you were asked to be a part of a multidisciplinary team where collaboration right. and communication. And how on earth? How? How? When you were well, never taught that for so many years. You know, and when we go in and do a kind of a, a rigorous metric-based assessment of team effectiveness and team wellness, um, we frequently in groups um, like that get scores back that say there's an undercurrent of disrespect in the workplace. Absolutely. And, and, the, and the behavior that hurts the team is tolerated by leadership and mm-hmm. collaboration is low. And we've had people on medical faculties who are, you know, internationally renowned for their for their brilliance and their discoveries and their and their technical skills who don't play nice in the sandbox and um, are the people when when situations get stressful and that could be in an OR uh, aren't nice to other people right mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. so now in the OR 
or wherever you're practicing, the uh, subject of the work is the patient's health, not whether you were disrespectful to the nurse who was trying to help you or to the other doctor or to the resident or to somebody else. And so a lot of these, a lot of the bad behavior gets either um, sanctioned or forgiven in some well, way. Well, because it's hazing. It's yes. hazing because you have to prove that you deserve to be there still. Exactly. Yeah, they, in, in nursing, they say nurses eat their young, right? Mm -hmm. that you have to get through that gauntlet if you're going to make it in this profession. And so mm -hmm. I think social work was the exception to that because social work was always kind of these gentle, loving, you know, uh, humanistic people wanting to look at the rest of the world from a strength-based perspective rather than a problem-based perspective. <laughs> so, but I, you know, but your world and mine have been filled with people who are, you know, brilliant and internationally renowned and do amazing things for the rest of humanity, but often aren't nice to each other mm -hmm. in a professional circle. And what, you know, the Gallup organization has told us is that every workplace has about 20% of those folks. Now, the interesting thing is that when you become a workplace that says, well, we're not going to be that anymore, you can shrink that 20% down considerably. You can even get it down to zero. Um, if, if everyone buys into a culture of accountability that, that doesn't say you can't behave poorly, it says that because we're human, we know that sometimes things are going to happen that we do that hurt each other. And then you fix that if you broke it and that we don't let problems get roots and, and get deep tentacles into our culture. We are committed to growing relationships and collaboration and cultures that support and grow each other moving forward. And then what's happens is that the folks who don't fit with that, you know, you you fear that there has to be some kind of a lengthy, you know, time intensive resource intensive human resources procedure to take care of them. But what often happens is that they leave themselves because the, you know, the healthy environment no longer meets their unhealthy needs. So they have to go somewhere else to be mean to people or to make other people feel small or whatever it is their goal is. Interesting. Can a culture be healthy where conflict is discouraged? So you, you're not allowed to express your frustrations. You are a guest here and you you have to prove that you deserve to be here. So you really have no right to express any frustrations. You should be lucky to be here. Yeah. Well, there's a cost for that. So businesses and, and teams can uh, achieve results in that culture, just not nearly as amazing as the results would be in a more collaborative, more inclusive culture. Uh, okay. I talked to someone uh, a week ago who said, you know, all of those aspects on the ledger of healthy versus unhealthy teams. He says, we check off every single unhealthy one, yet <laughs> we make profit, we innovate things. Uh, and the answer is not at, at, at the level that you could uh, if your norms were healthy. And mm -hmm. so if, if the divorce rate is 50%, so 50% of the people that get married stay married, what percentage of those are healthy marriages? Maybe a small percentage because an, a number of folks decide to live with unhealthy dysfunctional norms and what we tolerate we sanction and you know because we're living things we seek homeostasis so living things seek sameness sameness doesn't have to be healthy sameness can be let's not change the unhealthy thing that we do wow once upon a time in a medical setting i had someone who was above me this is pretty much a quote say to me i eat management's so you have to eat mine. Oh, my goodness. My guess is that somewhere along the line, that became one of the pieces of evidence that you made to say, I'm going to take my MD and I'm going to use it to help the world in a different way than colluding with something like this. <laughs> now, I've finally been able to get to a point where I have no regrets. I'm the person I am because of my experiences, but... I've seen some stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Definitely. Exactly. Seen well, and I know, stuff. and that's when you and I met for the first time, was in the mm -hmm. middle of all that stuff and in the middle of the transition that came from it. And the transition wasn't easy, but where you are now happened because of that, not in spite of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anything else that I might have left out that you'd like to add? Oh, boy, we could talk for a long time. <laughs> we really uh -huh. could. This has been spectacular. Yeah, yeah. I've learned so much. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess, you know, I think um, I've listened to some of your other podcasts and, and you always talk about what it means to be healthy. And I like the fact that that's more than just nutrition and exercise. It, it certainly is. And so yeah. for you, what would that be? Well, I always kind of think about it in terms of as many wellness domains as I can imagine. So let's just do a brain dump. So being disease-free is a wellness domain and being fit and having good nutrition is a wellness domain. But also how you manage your career and your professional satisfaction is a wellness domain. And your friends and your social life and your interpersonal relationships and your love life are all wellness domains. There's probably financial wellness. There's probably cultural wellness. Mm -hmm. There's probably mm -hmm. spiritual wellness and the list goes on. Um, so what I like, I, the way I think about wellness is if there are multiple domains, whatever the list may be for you and differently for me, maybe there's a kind of a community, you know, societal domain as well. Um, at any given time, one or more of these domains might be off balance in a little way. And so I always like to think about doing a, mini gap analysis of my own wellness periodically. How's my career? How are my finances? How's my fitness? How's my nutrition? How's my professional satisfaction? How are my friendships? How's my marriage? You know, um, how's my faith community relationship? Do I understand my cultural roots? And at any given time, one or a few of those might be a little off and could use some attention. And so I've always referred to that as kind of a personal strategic plan that if you, if you have a overarching goal for what you're supposed to be doing in the world, that's wellness oriented. So if, if my goal is to elevate others in some way, whether I do that as a husband or as a father or as a grandfather or as a neighbor or as a counselor, or as a consultant, or as a therapist, if my overarching goal is to elevate other people, there are certain uh, strategic priorities that make that possible. And if I define that by wellness, that means I have to be medically well. That means I have to be professionally satisfied. That means I have to have good relationships and all of those other domains that we mentioned. And so if we always kind of doing our own personal strategic plan and doing a gap analysis and paying attention to the one or two areas that might be a little off balance for one reason or another, um, then I think the kind of gestalt way of thinking about wellness gets served. Thank you very, very much for that wonderful answer and your generous time and a lot of great information. Well, thank you, Nadine. I really appreciate uh, the conversation. Uh, what it sparked, the authenticity of it, uh, and the history that we have together that allowed us to come into this conversation. And now it's time for practical tips. Mind, body, and spirit tip. I highly recommend reading Steve's books so that you can have the opportunity to strengthen and grow the teams in your life. Thanks for being here. See you next time.